we will be in Genesis chapter 20. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles there. We'll do the whole chapter this morning. I am so thankful for you all. I'm so thankful for our fellowship. Um, I'm so blessed. I, I just, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm just really encouraged, and I'm encouraged by, by you and by your encouragement, and, and you're not here for me, and I know that. But every now and then, someone will just say something really nice, and, and it's, <laughs> thank you. And if you don't have something nice to say to me, please hold that, keep it to yourself. <laughs> No, I'm just thankful, but I was thinking this morning, even before I got here, um, about how we all can have a tendency, and, I, and I'm not saying that you do this with me, because I really know you don't, you know me too well, but we have a tendency to look to other human beings, and, um, and we can elevate other human beings, and what I mean by that is we can look at people like Abraham and say, wow, Father of the faithful, what, what a giant of faith. Until you start reading his life. Until you start seeing, I struggle with this. He struggles with what I struggle with. He did something way worse than me. Or you look at someone like Lot, if you're reading in 2 Peter. Righteous Lot, he's called righteous Lot three times. But he offered his daughters to the men of the city of Sodom in exchange for his visitors. Take my daughters. And I'm thinking, I've never done that. And I just want to encourage you that when we go through the scriptures and we look at all these people, there's only one to look to. His name is Jesus. And all the rest are just like us. They had the same problems. They had the same doubts. They had the same life issues. So many things not even accounted in the scriptures. Abraham, Moses, David, these, these men that you, could, that you could turn into heroes. And there's only one hero. His name is Jesus. There's only one to look to and to say, this one we worship, this one we praise. And all the rest are in the same boat, walking through life, either by faith in Jesus, which, which does strengthen and build up and encourage, or without faith in Jesus, and we know where that leads. So keep your eyes on Jesus, and especially this morning because Abraham's about to do it again. Genesis chapter 20, verse one, now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And so Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Lord, if ever I pray, and I know I have, when will I ever learn? We see this in Abraham again this morning. A repeat of the same old behavior. But Lord, there's more to this, as I believe we will see. And I ask, Lord, not only that we might see into Abraham's heart this morning, but that you would look deeply into ours and that you would uncover and reveal, not before the whole assembly, but uncover and reveal before our own eyes and before you what it is in us that causes us to repeat or causes us to falter or causes us, Lord, to stumble in our following after you. See, I ask you to reveal it, Lord, because I know when you uncover things, when you reveal things, you do it with such tenderness and such grace. You do it in such a way that I don't come out feeling shamed but convicted. And I pray for that this morning, but I also pray, Holy Spirit, that you would pour out comfort on us today because I think we're all gonna be able to relate so much to where Abraham is at. So Holy Spirit, this, this is your word. Teach us your word. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna go over to Romans chapter five. So if you'll keep your finger in Genesis 20 and turn to Romans five for a moment, it's a good place to begin for what we're about to deal with, what we're about to talk about. I also wanna say while you're turning there, there are two kinds of teaching. There's eisegesis and exegesis. And exegesis is really what I desire, it's what I long to do. Eisegesis can work its way in. What's the difference? Eisegesis is reading into the text. Exegesis is reading from the text. So exegesis is allowing the Bible just to speak, here's what it says, this is the deal. 
Eisegesis is when we look at it and say, I think perhaps this is going on. And we're gonna do some of that this morning. I'm telling you that ahead of time because I want you to stay in the chapter and you may read through it with me and say, oh, I think Rick is eisegesising way too much. By the way, that's not a word, but you know what I'm saying. Um, That's fine. But I went over this and I prayed about it and because I'm gonna talk about some things that are not implicitly, well, they're not explicitly in the text, but they are implicit, I believe. And so we may wander a bit into the shallow end of eisegesis this morning, but at the same time, we'll take our time to exegete the text and and try to make sure that we're covering everything that is right there as well as looking at things which may not be so obvious. Do I have your attention? (laughs) Romans chapter five, verse one, Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, and that should be underlined in every Bible, having been justified by faith, not behavior. Now, faith will change behavior. And yes, we are pursuing morality and sanctification, but we have been justified by faith. We believe him, therefore, we are justified. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not disappoint. I may disappoint you. You may disappoint yourselves and each other. But hope does not disappoint because our hope is in God whose love has been poured out. And he does not disappoint. Romans 9.33 says, it is written, quoting Isaiah 28.16, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Hope does not disappoint. He who believes in Jesus will not be disappointed. Paul repeats that in Romans chapter 10, verse 11. He repeats it again. Actually, Peter quotes it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. And you all head back to Genesis 20, but on your way there, listen to this. The sweet psalmist of Israel, David said, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not delivered disappointed. Anyone disappointed this morning? When a dear friend uh, or a spouse or a brother or a sister disappoints you, it can unravel relationship. In fact, I think we could probably go so far to say that when a relationship unravels, it's at least it yields disappointment if if not saying that disappointment is the reason it ultimately unraveled. You were not what I thought you would be. This is not where I thought it would go. I'm so disappointed in how you're responding to me in what you've said to me and what you've done to me and relationship comes apart. The Bible says in Proverbs 18, 19, a brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Ever experienced that? You've been the offender, and you try to make it right, and you try to seek reconciliation, but they will have none of it. Why? Because they're disappointed. And once we get disappointed in a person, sometimes it's really hard to come back. Disappointment is a favorite device of the devil. Oh, he uses that, he wields it well. He uses disappointment because disappointment can devastate faith. We see it all too often in the church. I know you've experienced it if you've been around any amount of time, a brother offended, a sister slighted, and so they walk away. Maybe you've walked away. Maybe you've just had enough of these church people. You know, here's the thing. We expect it of the world. We go to work and we assume someone's gonna do something stupid. 
You know, we deal in the marketplace and we assume that disappointments will happen and all that, but not in the church. Not here, right? This is where we're not supposed to be forsaken. This is where disillusionment isn't supposed to happen, where I'm not gonna be let down at church with my brothers and sisters. That's the safe place. Shouldn't the bar be a little higher with Jesus' own people? You know, it's no excuse, but Christians are just people. We are not instantaneously supermen, superwomen. We're just people, and people are messy sometimes. And Jesus said in Luke 17, three, be on your guard. If a brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, Jesus says, forgive him. I don't know about you, but after about the third time in the same day, I'm getting a little uncertain about this whole forgiveness thing. (laughs) Clearly it's not working with you, doofus, so... No, he says, just, you just keep forgiving. That's your job. That's my job. You see, because where there's forgiveness, disappointment gets washed away. It can't, it can't take seed. If I can forgive, you know, what's funny about this is Jesus made that comment, if he sins against you seven times and comes back to you seven times asking for forgiveness, you, re, you forgive him, and you know what the apostle said in response? Lord, increase our faith. How in the world? What? what? You're telling us just to forgive over and over and over? Increase our faith. Why? Because it takes faith to forgive. Now, now listen to this. This is so fundamental, but so incredibly important for us as followers of Jesus, that the more I put my trust in the Lord, the more confident I can be to forgive anybody, anything. I can do it without fear. I can do it without worry. Why? Because I trust him. So whether or not you're good to me or bad to me is is truly, it's irrelevant because I trust him. My security is in him, my confidence in him. I've got him, so we good. Whatever you do. Boy, I'm setting myself up here, aren't I? (laughs) But that's really the point. If my confidence is in in those around me and they start to disappoint me, I'm falling apart. How can I forgive that? I gotta protect my heart. But if I am in this beloved relationship with Jesus Christ, my heart's protected. I can forgive you, you can sin against me again, and I can go, yeah, I forgive you again because I'm good with him. Because Jesus has got me. But without faith in him, all I've got to fall back on is me. The only one ultimately I, am in, ended up, I end up with at the end of the day trusting is is. Me. But what about Cheryl? Now I gotta be real careful because my father-in-law is gonna hear this. He's listening to me. (laughs) Don't you trust your wife? Absolutely. But husbands, wives, you ever disappointed your spouse? (laughs) (laughs) That is the right thing to say in church. (laughs) You know what? There are times, late at night, I'm lying there and I'm angry because we are not seeing eye to eye. Who am I left with? Just me or Jesus? And I can say, Lord, she's, and tell her to, and if you would just, and it's amazing how quickly he's dealing with me. Oh, I started this, didn't I? If I have him, I can always go to him. If I don't have him, I have nobody else but myself. And you know who disappoints me more than anybody else in the world? Myself. That's why we need him. Listen, (laughs) what do you do, however, in all this when you've been let down by God? What if he's the one who's disappointed you? Now I know some of you are going, whoa, 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 can you even say that? Are we allowed to ask that question? Have I been, hey, I'm just saying what some of you have felt or thought or may be feeling right now. God has let me down. Oh, you might not articulate that, but in your heart you're going, I I don't know. 
I prayed, I hoped, I waited, and it hasn't worked out. In fact, the opposite of what I prayed for is going on right now. I'm disappointed. Lord, what's going on? Please hear me. When I have felt disappointed by God, and I have, it has always been because I was short on understanding. It has always been because I lacked perspective. I needed insight. I needed revelation. He's always been faithful to bring it. When you are disappointed with God, and if you haven't been, you will be, understand he is not the source of the disappointment. He's got you. He will get you through it, and he is not one who disappoints, which is why I started out with all those passages. Hope does not disappoint. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Over and over and over, we are not disappointed, even to the point that our fathers trusted in you, they trusted in you, and they were not disappointed. That's the truth. So if you are disappointed in God, with God, if you have been disappointed in or with God, or if you ever will be in that place in the future where you're feeling that sense of letdown, of disappointment with Jesus, understand he will not let you down. Understand that there's something yet that you need to understand, that you need to learn to come to that place of finding that you are not disappointed in him at all. The devil is determined to devastate your faith. That's what he's about. And as I said, his singular best tool for that is disappointment. If he can disappoint you, if he can make you feel disappointed in the Lord, your faith begins to crumble because now where do you go? Who else do you turn to? On the other hand, Jesus cultivates faith. He plants it, he tends it, waters it, grows it, and he does it all to harvest trust in that beloved friendship with God, the relationship we talked about last Sunday, that belovedness. And Abraham's life is a picture of that. This is why I love this man so much, not because he's this great father of the faith, this, this giant of, of our whole belief system. No, he's just a man who stumbles along and bumbles along through life as he sojourns in Canaan, and I look at him and I say, I relate to this guy. And we see God working with him patiently, walking with him to cultivate faith. Go back to chapter 19 of Genesis. It's the morning of the fiery overthrow of Sodom and the cities of the plain. Abraham had pleaded with God, interceded for his nephew Lot and his family. Now he's up at dawn the next morning with a lot on his mind. And verse 27 says, Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. That is, stood before the Lord, interceding, praying, pleading. And verse 28, And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. How is Abraham feeling? He's looking down at smoking Sodom. The very next day after pleading with, the God to save, with God to save the city, how would you feel? Now, this is the eisegesis part of it. Read into it. You're there. You're the one who's been praying. Save my family and the city in which they live. And now the next morning, you're up looking at the city, and it's nothing but smoke and ash. Did you hear my prayers? Lord, were you even there how do I deal with this? Abraham had gotten the Lord to agree to save Sodom if only 10 righteous people could be found, right? 10, number of his family living in Sodom. But now it looks like all Abraham's prayers have gone up in smoke. By the way, that's what prayer does. Prayer goes up in smoke. The Bible tells us, Revelation 8, 4, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Prayers always go up before the Lord. The prayers of the saints always rise before him, but they don't just go up like smoke and ash and dissipate. No, they go up like the smoke of the altar of incense. They go up as a sweet smell before the Lord. 
The prayers of God's beloved always go up. Proverbs verse, chapter 15, verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Is Abraham a righteous man? Yes, why? Faith. He does believe. He has acted on the belief many times through this walk. And Abraham prayed to the Lord. Did the Lord hear his prayer? Absolutely. Did Abraham feel like the Lord heard his prayer? See, this side of heaven, you might find yourself wondering, did my prayers make it in? Have I really been heard? No question, God more than heard Abraham. He tried to get Lot's entire family out. When that wouldn't work, he literally dragged out four of them by hand. He tried to save Lot's wife. He did save Lot and his two daughters. Of course, at this point, Abraham probably doesn't know that. Isn't aware. I don't know if word has reached Abraham, certainly not the next morning when he saw the smoke rising. Word didn't get to him that quickly that Lot had survived, was saved. So he's looking at this, having prayed for his family, prayed for his nephew, and to no avail, it seems, and all the evidence in chapter 20 points to the fact that Abraham's faith in God is at minimum rattled. He is disappointed, if not devastated. Chapters 18 and 19 provide the contextual backstory for what happens next, and I want you to note this. First sign of disappointment in Abraham Abraham, number one, walks away from fellowship. He walks away from fellowship. Verse one, Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. The Negev of Israel is, Negev means south country. It's the wilderness south of Jerusalem. In fact, as you begin to head down, you you head toward uh, Hebron, uh, Beersheba, down to the south. That's all the Negev, that large, massive, actually, southern region region of Israel. And Gerar is 15 miles south to southeast of Gaza. It's Tel Haror today. We believe that that was ancient Gerar. There's a a tell there. It's uh, early Philistine country. It's 50, 60 miles south of where Abram was staying. Now, what's he doing down there in this region in Gerar? He's sojourning. Well, that's good, right? He's sojourning in the land, so that's, that's faith, isn't it? He's sojourning, he's kind of wandering, and he's left Hebron and the altar behind. And, and I want you to think about this with, with me for a moment. By itself, you might say, well, that doesn't tell us much, so he journeyed down to the Negev. So, the language and the timing are oddly instructive here. Abraham had been in Hebron prior to leaving, prior to chapter 20, he had been in Hebron roughly 20 years. 20 years. But suddenly, He packs up and bugs out. When? Immediately following the devastation of Sodom. In fact, in the text, that's what we see. Abraham looks down, he sees the destruction, and he packs up and moves. He's out of there. Hebron is perched in the mountains up above the Jordan Plain, so it's a perfect place to look down into that plain anytime you want. And it reminds me, I thought about this, in 2018, The population of Paradise, California was 26,437 people. That was before the campfire. Do you know what the population in Paradise, California is today? It just barely crosses 2,000. 90% of the original residents there won't go back. 90%. Why? Can you imagine getting up every morning and looking at a world of devastation? So can you imagine Abraham getting up every morning and having to look down and see Sodom and be reminded once again of the destruction, the devastation, and the fact that his prayers seem not to have been answered at all. So he walks away. By the way, Hebron means fellowship. Abraham departs from fellowship, you could say. 
He left fellowship. And, and there's more than just the name that means fellowship that indicates this. He walks away from worship. He never builds an altar in Gerar. He leaves the altar in Hebron, a place where he built and, and worshiped God. And you know, it's interesting, we, we talk about in the life of Abraham, in fact, it, it, it's probably a standalone sermon on its own, about the life of Abraham was pitching tents and building altars. That's what he did, he pitched tents and he built altars. Do you know that in the scriptures at least, he only built four in his entire life, four altars. Genesis chapter 12, verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abram, saying, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. That's at the Oak of Moreh. That's in a place called Shechem, and we could call that the altar of promise. God makes a promise. Abram, at the time, says, great, builds an altar of worship. Then in Genesis chapter 12, verse eight, he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the east and Ai on the right, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. You could call that the altar of prayer because now that's Abram just calling out to God, Abram pursuing God, altar of promise, altar of prayer. Thirdly, Genesis 13, verse 17, God said, arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. And then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, which is where he's now been for 20 years, in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. You could call that the altar of possession. Because there in Hebron was where God said, look around, this is all yours. I give it to you as a possession. So the altar of possession he had built the altar of prayer. He built an altar of promise. And finally, and most significantly, Abraham will build one more altar on Mount Moriah, Genesis 22. And we're coming close to that story. We'll just call it this morning the altar of provision. For Genesis 22:14, 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. An altar of promise, of prayer, of possession, and then finally of provision. And the point is that these were not just arbitrary altars. He wasn't building altars like he was pitching tents. He wasn't just, you know, oh, let's put an altar here, let's put one there. It, it, it was not a common thing. Four times in his entire life, he stops and he focuses and builds an altar. Each one of these altars are singularly special, meaningful to Abraham, and he walks away. In chapter 20, we see him walking away from the altar of possession at Hebron. Hebron, the place of fellowship with and the worship of El Shaddai, I think, Abraham is disappointed. But I think there's more that proves that. Secondly, note that Abraham now wanders into old deception. Wanders into old deception. Verse two, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah, who's, by the way, 90 at this point. 90 and joining a harem. Well, that's great. Some of my sisters that are a bit older than me, I just want you to think about that. Wouldn't that be a treat? <laughs> Remember Genesis 13? Abraham went down to Egypt, lied about Sarah, said, she's my sister, and the Pharaoh took her. He went down, to, he always go down to Egypt. Well, in this case, he's gone down to Gerar, Philistine country, and he's pulling the same shenanigans, same song, second verse, what would make him do this? Abraham, you're not even Abram anymore. You're Abraham, you've grown in faith. You've walked with the Lord, you've seen his provision. You've met with him a number of times now. Why would you revert to this old deceptive behavior? Because disappointment does a real number on trust. If I can't trust you, who do I have left to trust? Just me. So I gotta figure this out. Now, some critical scholars from the University of Idiocy, they say that this is just a duplication of the original story, but the stories are completely different except for the sin behavior. That's the same. Stories are different. That was Egypt, this is Gerar. That was Pharaoh, this is Abimelech. 
In that case, Pharaoh will say, get out of my country. In this case, Abimelech will say, stick around. They're very different stories. In fact, skip down to verse 13. Let's sit on this verse for just a minute. It tells us that Abraham is now speaking to Abimelech, trying to cover himself, and he says this. He said, it came about when God caused me to wonder from my father's house. Now, note that, when God caused me to wonder <laughs> from my father's house, I said to her, I said to Sarah, this is the kindness to which you will show me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Guess what? Before they set foot in the promised land, this was Abraham's policy. This was not just a rogue event in Egypt. This is what they had planned ahead to do. If we ever have a problem, if anyone ever asks if you're my wife, you say, no, I'm his sister, which then protects me. It's his insurance policy. I understand coming into the land with little or no faith, maybe just enough faith to believe that God has talked to him, and so he's, he's curious, he's following, but, and so I'm gonna, well, I'm gonna make sure that I'm covered here, but now we're a ways, well, 50 years or so into this relationship with God, and he's going right back to the old insurance policy. This is standard operating procedure, and suddenly we can actually give him the name Dishonest Abe. Amazing to me that the sojourner's security is this old insurance policy just in case Elohim lets me down. Any of us walk like that in our Christian faith? Just in case he lets me down, I'm gonna make sure that I've got myself covered. I'm so thankful here at the Bridge Fellowship that none of us think that way. But get this. And you gotta really track with me on this. Verse 13, where he says, when God caused me to wonder is literally when the gods caused me to wonder. What? Elohim is as a name, and it's Elohim here. Elohim is always plural. Remember I've told you before, El is singular, God singular. Elah is two or more, and Elohim must be at least three. So Elohim is a plural form for God. However, when speaking of God, it is always linked with a singular verb. That's what's very interesting about it. Elohim, which means three or more, but it's connected to a verb like you're talking to one person. But in this case, it's linked with a plural verb. So technically, literally in Hebrew, Abraham just said, when the gods caused me to wonder. Why would he say that? Why would he acknowledge? Now, he was a pagan before. Abraham was polytheistic coming out of Ur of the Chaldees and met the singular God, the one and only God, but now he seems to even be reverting to polytheism. Is that what's going on? Well, maybe he's just using pagan talk because he's talking to a pagan king. You ever have your language change when you're talking to non-believers? You ever find yourself dropping the name of Jesus or dismissing that and saying, well, you know, rather than saying, like, you're with your Christian friends and you say, oh, the Lord just showed up at church on Sunday. Jesus was so present and we just experienced him. And then you talk to your non-believing friends. Ah, uh, yeah, I was busy Sunday morning. Busy doing what? Well, I, you know, church. Yeah. And then your Christian friend comes up and the non-Christian friend leaves and goes, wasn't that great? The presence was so thick. I just knew Jesus was all over the place. And the non-believer comes back. Ah, we got out of there about 11.30. Pastor went a little long. So maybe that's what's happening here. Abraham's just using pagan talk for a pagan king. Or maybe, maybe, because again, we don't know, maybe Abraham is still in his own mind sorting out this sense of El Shaddai's singular plurality. Remember now, he's talked to him. He's prayed to him. He's dealt with God from the heavens and, and in person. And so maybe he's trying to think that through. I think that's probably a little bit of a stretch. Bottom line here, don't freak out on Abe's language or on his learning curve. And don't worry about this. The Bible is crystal clear on the matter. Isaiah 45, verse five, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Jeremiah 10, verse 10, the Lord is the true God. He's the living God. He's the everlasting king. 
At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Or John 17, 3, where Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So whatever's going on with Abraham as he, as he uses this, this plural form that God's caused me to wonder, here's the real problem with what he just said. It's the plural verb. Caused me to wonder. They caused me to wonder. This verb is used 50 times in the Bible, always negatively, always. It's never in a positive light. Abraham could have chosen any one of six other Hebrew words for caused me to wonder or led me to wander or led me to sojourn. Six other words he could have used, but he chose this one. The word is hitu, hitu, caused to wonder. The gods, they caused me to wonder, and this, this verb literally is translated in other places. It's of animals going astray. It's of seduction into sin. It is a false prophet's lies that cause people to sin. It's used to describe the path of a lying heart, and it's used to describe a staggering, reeling, drunken man. That's the verb he chose. So not only is it the gods caused me to wonder, but it's the gods caused me to come drunk and reeling into this land. The gods led me seductively into this place. The gods caused me to follow this, this path, uncertain, wobbly. It's the worst word available to describe what we think of as a decades-long decades sanctification process. Oh, Abraham, the sojourner, that sojourning saint, and what he describes to Abimelech is I, I just was, I was led along by the gods like I was drunk. I was led astray into this land. Well, that sounds like disappointment to me. He walked away from Hebron, fellowship, and people will do that when they're disappointed. They will just depart fellowship very quickly. They'll walk away from worship. He wandered into this old con game, backsliding and, and blaming God. The gods did it, or God did this. Either way you take it, he's casting blame. And he sounds again to me like a man in deep, deep disappointment. Have you ever gotten up on a Sunday morning and, and wondered if you could even go to church that day because of what happened with those people or with that pastor or in that location. I don't even know if I can show my face there. That's disappointment. And I'm not saying that to call you out if that's you this morning. I'm saying that's exactly how I believe Abraham felt. And you are not the first, nor will you be the last person to feel that way. Deeply disappointed. Psalm 27, 13 says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Don't wait for the people. Don't wait for the pastor. Don't wait for the church to get its act together. You wait for the Lord. You trust in the Lord. I would have despaired unless I believed I'd seen the Lord or I would see the Lord, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What if you don't? What if you're not? Abraham's wandering disappointment. Listen, it not only put Sarah at risk because he's back to the old lies, but you know what it did? It put the entire covenant of God at risk. This is supposed to be the year of Sarah's pregnancy. This is the year where she's supposed to now, by the seed of Abraham, produce a son named Isaac. Laughter, joy. That's this year when Abraham lies about her and she ends up in a harem. So the very seed of Isaac promised by God in covenant made by God is at risk now if Abimelech goes in with her, sleeps with her, and then she's pregnant for all history since, we would be going, was it Abraham or Abimelech? We really don't know. And the critics would have a field day. This is not a good time for Abraham to be backsliding in disappointment. I mean, this is amazing to me. Sarah was either pregnant 
right now, or she's about to be, although after Abe hands her off to another harem, prospects might be not great for intimacy. I'll let you think about that. I wonder how many times I've put God's covenant at risk in my life. How many times in my own foolishness or maybe even my own legitimate disappointment have I wandered back into old deceptions only to put the witness of God at risk in this world? Because I was too disappointed to see. Man, the heart is deceitful, isn't it? Bible says, the heart is more deceitful than all else, is desperately sick, who can understand it? And you know what happens? In a heart disappointed, rebellion starts to rise up. You let me down. I don't have to do what you say. In fact, I'm just gonna do things my own way. Brothers and sisters, don't let that happen. Don't let your heart become rebellious. Don't give the devil the pleasure. In fact, take the advice of the Hebrew pastor, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For in yet a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by what everyone around him is saying. Faith. My righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. The soul, he says, the mind. See, the heart, the heart is saved by faith. The mind perseveres by faith. The mind is, is strengthened and allows me to say, in spite of even the mess in my home church going on right now, I can walk in the door because I trust God is gonna do right here. Well, you haven't seen him do right yet. I know, but I believe he will. I believe God to make right out of the biggest messes I've made. Don't shrink back. Well, quickly here, we need to set aside Abraham's disappointment just for a moment and deal with Abimelech's dismay because he's caught up in this whole mess. Abimelech. Abimelech's name, by the way, means father king. It's not a name really at all. It's a title, King Daddy-O. He's the, <laughs> he's the father king of the Philistines in Gerar, an early city-state ruler there, and it's actually somewhat of a presumptuous title. Oh, Father King. Oh, how we do honor Father King. <laughs> Jesus said in Matthew 23, nine, don't call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. We have a Father King, and his name is Jesus, Yeshua. Well, verse three, but God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night <laughs> and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. I just love the Lord. You're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, and that's not Lord with capitals, that's Adonah, that's, that's Sir. I mean, he recognizes in this dream he's speaking to one greater. Lord, we you slay a nation, even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister, and she herself said, he's my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. The integrity of my heart. I didn't know any better. In the innocence of my hands. Hey, and I didn't do anything. <laughs> the child whose hand is in the cookie jar but hasn't actually touched the cookies yet. I didn't do anything. I didn't know, you didn't say that I couldn't. How quickly we go to those places. Well, that's why God came to him with this alarming dream instead of talking to King Big Boy Pants immediately. <laughs> why King Big Boy Pants? Well, notice the arrogance of Abimelech here. Would you slay a nation though blameless? We're the blameless ones. He says, I have integrity, I'm innocent. And John said in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, integrity and innocence, so-called, do not invalidate our iniquity. 
Sin is sin, whether I know it or not. But I didn't know it was sin. Doesn't matter, it's still sin. But I didn't mean to. Doesn't matter if you did it. But I didn't do it, but you were going to. See, we have this whole hang-up on sin, and while you and I may not actually act on some sins, we are completely culpable for so many others. Don't fool yourself. What if it's been a good week? I mean, a really good week. I look back over the last seven days, and I think, I really don't think I sinned once. (laughs) What if it's been a good month or a good year? What if this morning, if asked, you really are having a hard time coming up with a list of sins to confess? Now, I gotta tell you, some of you probably could do that. Most of us can't. Most of us are like, (laughs) I couldn't even come up with a list of, you know, I, I couldn't even say I was sinless like this morning. <laughs> but there, there are those brothers and sisters, and I've had friends like this who, I mean, you just, you've just lived a good life. You were a good kid. You did what your parents said. You were obedient. You know, you, you never intended wrong on anyone. Oh, I, maybe there are little things here along, along the way, but for the most part, I'm a good person. What if that's me? Well, then confess that you're a sinner. Confess that you need Jesus. This is interesting to me. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because the issue is not how big a sinner or how little a sinner I am. The issue is I need Jesus either way. If I don't even think or even know if I am a sinner, trying to figure that out, doesn't matter, I need Jesus because ain't no getting into heaven without him. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So there's one way in, and on my best day, I need Jesus. And on my worst day, oh, how I need Jesus. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine, John 8, 21, or or 31, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And if it says this up there, if it says John 8, 21 through 32, it's 31 through 32. I'm telling you now so you don't have to tell me later and discourage me. (laughs) You'll know the truth. If you continue in my word, the truth will make you free, free from deception, free from guilt, free from sin. Realized or not, you will walk free if you trust Jesus. Well, Abimelech didn't have Jesus, but verse six, God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, but I love this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. (laughs) Wait a minute, God. The first mention of the word prophet in the Bible is right here, and that's the example? Dishonest Abe is the example of, this is my prophet who will pray for you, and you will live. Okay, who's the believer here and who's the pagan? God calls Abraham in his dishonesty, God calls him a prophet. And then he tells Papa Smurf that he's gonna have to pray for him. <laughs> and I, I, I read this and I, I'm just being honest. That can't be right. That can't be right, can it? Hold that thought, verse eight. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing and the men were greatly frightened. I'm sure they were. God appeared to me in a dream. Can you imagine some Sunday morning? Hey, God appeared to me in a dream last night and said, Rick, you're a dead man and all those around you. I'm like a walking coronavirus. Verse nine, and then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. The pagan is preaching to the prophet. (laughs) The heathen is moralizing the man of God. This is so upside down. In fact, the old rabbis call this quote a comic inversion of common expectations 
that you have a Gentile king righteously scolding Abraham the prophet. Everything just seems upside down here. Verse 10, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? Whoa. Literally, he says, what have you seen that you would do such a thing? The dismayed king is calling out the disappointed sojourner. What have you seen? What had Abraham seen? The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The possible loss of his entire family through Lot. What have you seen that you would do this? And you know, it's just true in the world. Jesus says sometimes the uh, children of darkness are, are a little more savvy than the children of light. And I, I realize, and I've seen this happen, in fact, it's happened with me, where the non-believer looks into the wandering believer and says, what's wrong? Something's gone wrong with you. What happened in your church fellowship that now you're out with us drinking tonight? Why'd you walk away? You, you, you were spouting Jesus before. Now you're spouting bourbon. <laughs> Sometimes it just comes out, I don't know. <laughs> Why are you wandering back into the old stuff? What did you see? And I think, and this is just me, I said Jesus. I think if Abraham answered transparently, he would have said, I saw Sodom burning. I prayed, I interceded, I asked God, the one and only God, and all I got was smoke. So I'm trusting myself. Now I'm found out, I'm caught, truly, but I am trusting myself. I have an insurance policy with Sarah, and this is what it is, and so I just gotta protect me. Here's what he actually said, verse 11. Because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Insurance policy. No one fears God in this place. In other words, I feared you more than I trusted him. What happened to the fearless friend of God just weeks before pleading with the Lord to save Sodom in confident faith? I mean, truly, chapter 18, last half of the chapter that we looked at last week, the friendship that Abraham had with God to be able to Talk to him in such a manner and be so upright and, and upfront and forthright with the Lord. It's, it's amazing, it's fearless, it's wonderful. And, and that was confident faith. And now this is crumbly defensiveness. He's not done. As Abraham piles on even more weak excuses in his disappointment. Besides, she actually is my sister. Daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now, later in Leviticus, God will stop that practice. But at this point, it was not prescribed as wrong. It was acceptable. And so Abraham, Abram married Sarai, who was the daughter of his father, but not his mother. So his half-sister. So, so he's like, so it's, it's kind of true. It's a deception, bro. Come on. Yeah, but she kind of is. And then verse 13, and it came about when the gods caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. And again, it's this old life insurance policy. This is my backup plan. Do you have one? Do you have a fallback in case God doesn't come through for you? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Don't make your own insurance policy. Trust the Lord. Faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Hebrews 11, verses one and six. Hey, faith pleases God. Why? Not because he's demanding rules for ritualistic religion. He's not demanding faith for appeasement. No, he's asking you to trust in him. Why? Because that's what beloved friends do. Please trust me. I will prove myself faithful to you. Just trust me. Well, verse 14, Abimelech then took 
sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. And then to Sarah he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. (laughs) I like this guy. He's a pagan, but I like him. I've given your brother, not your husband, a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it's your vindication before all who are with you. That is your justification. And before all men, you are cleared. In other words, you didn't do anything, and the silver will prove that. Very interesting. Abimelech, still a bit dismayed from this dream, is now paying off the prophet. Sheep and, you know, flocks and herds. So Abraham's getting richer (laughs) in his faithlessness. Have you ever seen that? That's, that's something that's kind of surprising, isn't it? When someone uses religion and gets rich off of it? Is that a new thing? So he's paying off the prophet. He's clearing the wife, and I think he's going way overboard. Why? For Abraham? No, for God. To show the God of his dream. It's all good. We good here, right? It's also the first time we see silver given as a token of vindication in the Bible. And that's significant. You will see this come up many times. Silver in the Bible always represents redemption. Redemption. So a thousand pieces of silver for the redemption of Sarah. And I read the whole story and I say, man, it just seems like Abraham's getting off scot-free. The faithless prophet is making a profit. (laughs) How does this work? Okay, this is what we've been coming to. Verse 17 Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. James 5.16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So why did Abraham's prayer work? (laughs) It's the effective prayer of a righteous man, right? Exactly. Abraham was a righteous man because for all of his many failures in his life and sojourning, he did believe God. This is such an interesting story and and where it's placed, it's placed here because it happened here, okay? So it is chronologically accurate. But still, the fact that God would bring this one into play and it's one I've struggled with for years. I've read and thought, man, it's just, I'm glad we're done with chapter 20. Let's just go on to something else. Because it's hard to reconcile. Listen, regardless of the faithfulness or faithlessness of man, first thing to note about this is that God's covenant promise must stand. That God made a promise, a unilateral, unconditional promise to Abraham that he would be a father of multitudes, to Sarah that she would be a mother of nations. God made the promise, Genesis 12 2, I'll make a great nation of you, I'll bless you, I'll make your name great, you shall be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's promises, when he makes them, they're going to happen whatever we do. Whether we are useful in the promise or not, He's gonna make it happen. If he has to intervene as he did in a dream to Abimelech to maintain and protect the covenant, he is going to make it happen because his promises are for me. They don't depend on me. Isn't that good news? God's promised salvation is for you. It does not depend on you. 1 Timothy 5, 24, this is not up there. Faithfulness is, faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. 2 Timothy 2.13, also not up there. I put them in this morning. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, which is why the Lord keeps asking you, keeps asking me, trust me. Trust me. I will bring it to pass. I will make it happen. I've got this. But God, it doesn't look like I've got this. Yeah, but I'm so disappointed. I've got this. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Trust me, I've got this. Okay, but why does God, final question, have Abraham pray for Abimelech? And the answer is because he needed it. Oh, oh, sure, Abimelech needed it, but I'm talking about Abraham. 
Abraham needed it. This is the first time Abraham has spoken to God since the night before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a word of prayer, not a conversation, nothing. Am I reading into it? Perhaps. Had he talked to God? I don't know. But in the scripture, what's presented to us is the last prayer of Abraham was to save Sodom, which did not seemingly work. And the next prayer of Abraham is to save Abimelech and his household. Why did God have Abraham pray for Abimelech? Because Abraham needed to have a restored communication with God. God makes a way for Abraham to start talking again. This is what I would call the influence of intercession. Please hear this. I think it is so vital. It has been vital to my faith that when I'm interceding, while I may be interceding for you or for somebody else, I benefit. Because intercession is personal. As I'm crying out to the Father, guess what's happening? I'm crying out to the Father. As I'm praying for you, guess what? I am in communication with him. And the Lord knows this, and it's, it's astounding to me how he works this whole thing to protect the covenant, to, to keep everything moving forward the way it's supposed to, and also to call Abraham back into communication when Abraham, in his deep disappointment, isn't talking at all. God knows that even prayer for another person can restore my heart to him. If a brother offends you, if a sister offends you, pray for them. Well, I don't want to. It doesn't matter. Pray for them anyway, because in praying for them, you will be communicating with the Lord, and guess whose heart he's gonna change? Yours. He'll work with you. He'll work on you. And if it feels as though God is disappointed or has disappointed you, talk to him. Talk to him. Listen, I, I opened up with a quote from the sweet psalmist of Israel. And the quote is, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. And I mentioned that David said that. Well, actually, that's kind of a deception, sorry. David didn't say that. David wrote that. Well, then who said it? It's out of Psalm 22. Jesus said it. Psalm 22, after saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I had a conversation with a couple brothers about this recently. Listen, in his humanity on the cross, Jesus, I have no doubt, felt disappointed Deep disappointment in his flesh. I know it's used to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, because God turned his back on Jesus. I completely disagree. I don't think the father ever turns his back. Well, he can't look at sin. Well, then he can't save you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says that for two reasons. One, because he's directing them to Psalm 22, a prophecy of the crucifixion from the cross. But also, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is how he felt in his flesh. Disappointed, let down, uh, forsaken. But he cries it out to the Father because in his spirit he knew where there is trust in God, disappointment always dissolves away. What do you do with your disappointment? You take it to God. You speak it to him. Father, this morning I pray for the disappointed, specifically for the hurting, for the discouraged, for those among us who have had great plans fall, for those who are looking at children who perhaps aren't walking with you or struggling in a relationship with a spouse or thinking about brothers and sisters that have just let us down. And Father, for all of us in our disappointment Father, it's time for us to start talking to you again. And I just pray you would restore communication. I pray that you would call us out of ourselves to cry out to you, even if our disappointment is in you, Lord. And, and I say that, Lord, knowing you don't disappoint. 
but I can feel it sometimes. And so, Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who feels that, I pray that the line of communication would be open, that intercession and prayer would happen again, and we would come back into a restored relationship with you, like I believe Abraham is. In fact, it's not lost on me, Father, that after he prays for Abimelech, the very next chapter, the covenant promise is born. So Lord, would you encourage your people and strengthen our faith? In Jesus' name, amen.